Hey, if you got a Bible, I would invite you to go ahead and grab your Bible, turn to the book of Hebrews. It's kind of way back there in the back. What we like to do around here is, is go straight to the Word, read the Word, pray, and then we're going to unpack the Word. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name's Trent. get the privilege of being the lead pastor here at McDonald's Christian Church. Uh, we're a church that believes in what God's Word can do in our life, and so this is where we start. If you're not there yet, just listen. Hebrews chapter 1, I'm going to actually take us kind of through the whole entire chapter. We're going to specifically lean into verses uh, back half of 3, so really kind of 4 through 14. We're going to dive into that today, but this is the word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who he appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the whole passage we're going to dive into here today. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, and today I've begotten you? Or again, you will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes the, his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, right, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And the Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all wear out like garment. But like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that's bound up in it. We thank you for the majesty of even these few verses that we're reading right here about divine angelic creatures and uh, the reality that your son is greater than even they are. And so today as we come to a passage of scripture that at first glance we can kind of hear and go, what in the world is this really talking about? What does that really mean uh, for me? I pray that first and foremost, Jesus, we can understand that you inspired this and there's not anything that you have spoken forth that you don't want to uh, change us with, that you don't want to uh, meet us in the middle of what we're going through. You tell us that when your word goes out, it does not return void. And so today, Jesus, I pray that you would empty me of me and so your word can go forth through me. I pray I begin to fade more and more into the background and your word, your light, the radiance of your glory, Jesus, shines forth in this room. I know people showed up today, God, with all sorts of different things going on in their life. And I pray, Jesus, that you would meet us right in the middle of all of that. Help us to come to you as we are. But Jesus, we pray, knowing and believing that you can change us and you wanna change us. You want less and less of who we have been to fade away, and more and more of who you are in us and through us to come to the forefront. That's what we long for, Jesus. We pray that by the preaching of your gospel today, that is exactly what happens. In your name, amen. Church, good to be with you today. Um, to remind us of kind of what we're in right now, we're in this book of Hebrews. Again, to set up the context a little bit before we get ready to dive into today, because you kind of heard some stuff, a lot of stuff about angels, and we're like, where are we going today? Let me just set up the reasons why the author is getting ready to talk about all this type of stuff. The book of Hebrews is to... Hebrews, way to go, you got it. Book of Hebrews is Hebrews. Hebrew people are Jewish people. Again, we talked about this a little bit before. When you hear Hebrew, Jewish, and Israelite, three different names to kind of talk about the same group of people, okay? The author is writing to people who are not just Jewish, but are people who are Jewish, but have now put their faith and trust in Christ. They see Christ as the fulfillment of everything they read about in the Old Testament. Everything that they knew and learned about God through the Old Testament, through prophets, through uh, priests, all of those things were pointing toward the coming of this person called the Messiah, the coming Christ. And Jesus is that person. Now, here's what you need to know and understand. 
there were some people who were Hebrew, Jewish people, who saw Jesus there on the scene. They saw what he did. They saw where he went. They saw him go and be crucified. And there were still a group of people who were Jewish who refused to believe that this Jesus character really was the Messiah, really was God's son. And those people are still the people today who would just say, I am Jewish. I'm not a Messianic Jew, which that's the type of Jew who says, yes, I am Jewish in heritage. But more important than that, I am Messianic Jewish, which means I trust that Jesus truly was the Messiah. And I put my faith and my trust in him. See, the apostle Paul, he's a Messianic Jew. He's a guy who's Jewish heritage, but then bumps into Jesus, blinds him. And he says, I'm giving my life to this Jesus. And now more importantly than me just being Jewish, I am in Christ. And so the author is writing to a group of people who are struggling with this tension of, hey, we have this old heritage, this old way of kind of doing life, but now we are made new in Christ. We put our new faith and trust in Christ. And, and if we believe scripture according to what he tells us in there, it says that anybody who's in Christ, behold, the old is gone and the new has come. And so the tension that these people are in is a tension that we actually guys can relate to. It's this tension between I'm in Christ, he supposedly has done something new in me, but I still feel this pull to go back to my old way of life, my old culture, my old habits, my old ways of thinking and handling problems, my old ways of eating, my old ways of drinking, my old ways of spending money, my old ways of any time there was some kind of fight or argument or things didn't go my way, I just ran away from those things. See, he's, he's trying to help us and them understand that in this life, as you're following Christ, you're trying to walk into the new, but the old is still there. And the old can still pull you back. That's why he is trying to help them understand truly who Christ is. Because he knows the same way he knows for me and you. Your best efforts to try to be a new Christian and a good Christian and to do all the things in your new life as a Christian that you should do, your best efforts are failures if it's not through Christ that which those happen. And so he's trying to help them understand and get the grasp of who Christ is. That's why he starts out going, he's a radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God. He's a creator. He's going to inherit the entire world. He purified all of our sins and he's sitting at the right hand of God. And he's writing this to them so that they understand who Christ is and that Christ is greater and that Christ is supreme. So I wanna teach you this. Hopefully you get this in your mind as we continue to go through Hebrews because what the author of the book is trying to do for the people who are reading it then and us who are reading it now is help them understand this one key fact. And this is the theme of the book. The theme, it rhymes. I didn't mean it to, but it'll help you remember it. The theme is Christ is supreme. The theme is Christ is supreme. Great job. The theme is Christ is supreme. So. He tells them this, and he's going to great lengths to help them understand this. And this is where we can come to a passage like this and go, okay, I can relate to that. I can relate to Jesus making me new, but still feeling this pull to let go of what Jesus has done in my life and what Jesus is doing in my life and drift back into all of my old ways. I know I'm not the only one here who have had moments when the old way seems a lot easier than the new way. I know I'm not the only one here who's had moments in their life where the old way seems to even make a lot more sense than this new way. And if you felt that pull to today is for you. Lean into where we're going because it may not seem like it at first, but what we're going to discover is that the root of what the Hebrews were struggling with here is actually something that we struggle with too. He starts out this passage talking actually about angels. And we're going to explain why in the world he goes there and why in the world he starts talking about angels. But let's dive into the passage here. Hebrews 1, 3, back half of 3, and then all of verse 4. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is just Jesus, uh, the, the author saying, Jesus made the purification for our sins, which is his perfect, spotless, innocent blood that is shed for us on the cross. That blood is what was shed to free us from our guilt, our shame. What we've done is we've sinned against that God. And so Jesus comes and he sheds his blood. His blood is bled out of him there on a cross. He gives his whole life up for us. And that blood that is shed is what can make us now pure, washed, white as snow. If we put our faith in what was done 
there on the cross, we can have forgiveness of our sins. We can stand before God and know that we are actually pure before him and that he doesn't have to keep going to the cross every time we sin again, that that purification was something that happened once for all. It covered it all. He goes on from there saying after he did that, he sat down. There wasn't more work to do. It covered all of them, past, present, and even the ones in the future. We dug into that a lot last week. If you missed that, go check that out. And after he does that, he sits down at the right hand of God. This is this magisterial place. And to sit at the right hand of God is to say, I am equal with him. And that's been what this author is trying to do from the very beginning of his book to go, Jesus is God. He manifests himself represented as the son of God on behalf of the father of God. He sends the Holy Spirit of God to help us be awake to who he really is. And he goes from here, okay? This is where we're gonna lean in specifically today. Sat down at the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels. That's the whole point that the author is trying to make here. Jesus is superior to angels. At the name that he has, as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Okay, so we show up and we hear this. <clears throat> and for most of us in this room, when you hear me say, hey, the big point of what he's getting ready to say is Jesus is superior to angels. All of us in this room go, duh. Like, we all knew that. Thank you. Can we move to chapter two? Bear with me today because there's a really big reason why the author is getting ready to spend like eight quotes from the Old Testament unpacking this principle that Jesus is superior to the angels. And this is one of those passages where you can read through and you go, I don't understand what is the point of this. And the reason most of the time we don't understand what is the point is because we don't understand why it was written. I'm gonna wait till the very end to explain to you why he's making this big point about the angels. So bear with me. First of all, we gotta talk about angels, all right? Because there's all sorts of bad theology and people think all sorts of dumb things about angels, okay? Anybody ever seen one? Oh, you're scared. Okay, you talk about it online. You want to talk about it here today? Okay, maybe we've seen an angel. Maybe we haven't. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I, I think I've, I've met some people who think maybe they could be. I, I, they saw them. They did something really amazing in my life, and then they were never again. Uh, maybe we've seen some angels. Uh, I feel like I've seen more demons. Um, we don't know. But what we do know about angels is they are over and over and over again mentioned in Scripture. When Scripture talks about angels, it mentions them using these two words. In the Hebrew, so the Old Testament, it talks about Malach, and then in the New Testament, kind of makes sense there, it's angelos. Both of the words, though, when they're translated, the word angels means messengers. They're sent on behalf of God to bring messages from God to people. Now, I want to, again, give us a decent theology of angels so that we're kind of on the same page of there. And then we want to talk about why this author proves that they are who they are. So if you're into this kind of stuff, take some notes. You can go study this later on. But please don't go study angels until you spent at least three or four years studying who Jesus is. All right? That's the wrong order. All right? So let's talk about the four main functions of angels. First one, angels are continually worshiping and praising God. Whole big set of Bible verses there. What we get a glimpse into when scripture shows us this, it shows us basically from eternity past, angels are around the throne of God, worshiping him. And then it shows us even now at this very moment, angels are around the throne of God, worshiping God. And it shows us even to an eternity future, that's the same thing angels are doing. They're worshiping and praising God. Second thing, main function of angels. Angels communicate God's messages to mankind. So uh, they are assisted, uh, they assist God in bringing the law to people. They show the future to Daniel and the apostle John uh, through revelatory dreams. Um, um, they revealed and helped announce the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. So this is kind of the main thing we know about angels. We, we think about the Christmas story. And when angel gets the announcement, who does she get the announcement from? The angel. Angel shows up, says, hey, uh, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. And she's like, I've never been with a man. And the angel's like, I know. <laughs> and then he goes on to explain to her that God's at favor on her and miraculous things are going to happen. So this is what angels do. They give messages from God to mankind. Another thing they do as a minister to believers. Uh, we see in the book of Acts, they're delivering uh, the apostles from prison. Uh, we see uh, in Luke 16, 22, Jesus is kind of talking about what angels do. He says they carry believers away from death to place of blessedness. And the fourth thing, uh, primary function of angels is angels will be God's. This one's kind of scary. This is like, we get all these other angels and they're like coming and telling really nice things, but this one is kind of terrifying. Angels will be God's agents in the final judgment and the second coming. But these are stories where Jesus, even in his uh, gospels, talks about the angels are going to come down and they're going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. He, he, he tells this weird parable about a uh, fisherman's net and pulling out the good fish, then, then just tossing over the bad fish. He tells this parable about separating sheep from goats. And he says that this is a job that the angels are going to do. So these are the five or the four primary functions of angels. So we come to that and we get that and we go, okay, 
So he's saying these things about angels, but he goes on to say, Jesus is truer, greater, and superior to these angels. And then what he does from here is he kind of in four different ways tries to prove that point. We're going to try to walk through this pretty quick, and then we're going to show you why in the world he makes this point. All right, so track with me. We're going to get there. All right, why in the world is he trying to make this point? And how is Jesus greater than angels? Verse 5. He says, for which angel did God ever say, you're my son, and today I've begotten you? He's quoting directly from Psalm 2-7. The reason he's using scripture to prove his point is because he's writing to people who this scripture is authoritative in their life. He's writing to Jewish people. And at this point in time, they have the Old Testament. And so he's quoting the Old Testament to them to go, listen, I want you to understand that Jesus is not just a, a, you know, kind of a, a really important guy, that Jesus is above the angels. No angel ever was told, you're my son, I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And I was quoting from 2 Samuel 7, 14. So if you're taking notes, I want to write this down. Why is Christ superior to angels? Because he has a superior name. He is given the name son. Son implies identity. Names in scripture, that implies the identity of who they are. So he's not just called the firstborn. He's not just called the son. That's just kind of like what he's called. It's who he is. He goes on from there, continues to make his argument. Verses six and seven. He says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Psalm 97, seven. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and ministers of flame of fire. Again, he's talking about what Jesus is able to make the angels be able to do so that they can continue to work and to glorify him. And the second thing he is that we see here about why Christ is superior to angels is he has a superior honor, a superior honor. What this is displayed on by these two passages that he quotes here is that the angels are worshiping Jesus, that Jesus isn't on the plane level filled with them, that the angels are actually worshiping Jesus goes on in verses 8 and 9, continue to prove his point from multiple different angles and using Old Testament scripture to do it. He says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, so it's the throne of the Son, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness, it's like a tool that kings would have, was kind of symbolic of their royalty. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So what he's saying here is saying this king that is Jesus has the tools and the symbols of royalty. He has the scepter of righteousness. He has been anointed by God. And those are things that you don't do to um, peasants. Those are things you don't do to lower level employees. Those are things you don't do to angels. Those are things you do to the king. And he's implying here that Jesus isn't, isn't just a king among kings, but that Jesus is the king of kings. He goes on, continuing on at this point, making this argument. He says, and you, O Lord, he's, again, he's quoting scripture here. You, O Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Great job singing a song that goes with what we're talking about, Eric. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Lastly, or thirdly here, this says that he has a superior existence. Jesus is greater than angels because he has a better existence. He exists as creator and everlasting king. Angels did not create the world, Jesus did. They are not the king of the universe, Jesus is the king. And he rounds it out, continues to quote a couple more passages in verse 13 and 14. He says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And then verse 14, he talks about kind of what the angels do. He says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So this is the believers here. So we see in verses 13 and 14 that Jesus is superior to angels because he has a superior job. Christ rules. That's why he says he is reigning at a kingdom. The enemies are going to be under his feet as a footstool. This is why it says that um, he is seated at the right hand of God. He is seated there, and then the angels are doing the bidding. The angels are serving. So we see all this, and you can read all this and go, that's awesome. Way to go. Like, Let's be dismissed and start back chapter two next week. Angels are not as cool as Jesus. The end. 
And like, honestly, that was where I was tempted to go. I was tempted to like, first half of the message, just be that big point. Like, Jesus is better than angels, moving on. Because the next part is juicy. The next part, he starts talking about things that we like to talk about. He starts getting into this, like, don't drift from your faith. Don't you drift, which that's a message we can relate to, right? But this whole stuff about angels are like, "Mm, I don't know what you're talking about there. Like, why? I get it, but why are you saying this? And that's the question we have to ask. Why in the world does he spill all this ink, quote, all these Old Testament passages, just to prove this point that Jesus is greater than angels? Let me help you understand how to study the Bible. When you come to scripture, hopefully you do, and you read a passage and you don't know what it means, you have to ask yourself this question. If I don't know what this means, let me try to figure out why it was written in the first place. What you're trying to figure out there is the context. What led this author, whoever wrote this, the Holy Spirit inspired them to write this. Why in the world did they write this? What was going on that the Holy Spirit would say, here's the message I need you to give to these people. And I wanna try to help explain that to you because this is where we can relate, all right? So remember, these people are what? Hebrews, okay? (laughs) Not a trick question. They're Hebrews, which means they have Jewish roots, all right? And the culture that they live in, Jews were an honor culture and they were very tight-knit with each other, okay? Now, when Jesus busts on the scene, and says he's the Jews Messiah, but not just the Jews Messiah, he's everybody's Messiah. What it does is it takes this whole nation that was a nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and it divides them. And there's some people who are over here on this side going, yeah, Jesus was a really cool guy, but I don't know if he was really God's son. And then there's some people, these are the Messianic Jews. This is the apostle Paul. This is Matthew. This is the apostle John. This is Peter. Guys who were Jewish, but now believe that Jesus is the total fulfillment, that he's not just kind of important, but that he really is God's son, that he's a radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint. To have seen Jesus is to see God. There's that whole group of people who believe that, and there's a whole other group of people who are like, "Mm, ah, I just don't think so. Now, in order for these two groups to get along, this group over here was like, listen, we know that there was something about him, right? There's just no denying. The things that Jesus showed up, the things that Jesus did, there was no denying the miracles. There was no denying that he was a rabbi. There was no denying that he was really, really, really special. And so because the Jewish people who were not yet believers in Jesus, but had seen Jesus and saw his followers, they made a consolation. They say, here's the deal, all right? So you can still be invited to family gatherings. Will you just say he was a really high-ranking angel so that we can still have you over? Because if you're gonna show up at family gatherings and you're gonna be out here talking about Jesus is the son of God, he's the only way to the father, that if I don't go through Jesus, that I can't be connected to Yahweh, my kids can't be hearing that. So if you want to stay a part of our family, if you want to stay a part of our culture, if you want to get an invite to Thanksgiving, will you just say he's an angel? Like, I don't need you to deny that he's real. Just say that he's a really important angel. See, he was saying all this to them because I would imagine people were already who had put their faith in Christ and who had Jesus doing something new inside of them, they were feeling this pull inside of them to downgrade Jesus from who he really is so that they could be culturally accepted. Now you're starting to see how this applies to our real lives. We downgrade who Jesus is. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And the only way to the Father is through him. Well, well, he's my way. You may find your way. You find your way through um, Allah. You find your way through Buddha. You find your way through, you know, karma weighing out at the end. You find your way through getting cool rocks in your pocket and rubbing them when you feel weird. Like uh, you find your way through whatever you want to find your way. Be what you want to be. Do you. All paths lead to the same God. See, now we're talking about our culture. To say, in order for me to be accepted, I need to downgrade the truth and reality of who Jesus is so that I can fit in. Another thing that they were battling against is persecution was starting to break out. But the Jewish nation had been around for thousands of years already. So they kind of had some swag about them. They had clout in society, so to speak. And because they had that, there was a little bit of protection from them, from the ruling governing authorities, whether the Romans or the Babylonians who were going to come in. They had some protection 
because of who they were and the fact that they were established. But all these Messianic Jews who were believing that Jesus really who, it was who he said he is, they didn't have that protection because they were now being known not as Jews. They were being known as followers of the way. They were being known as people not primarily identified by Judaism or following the Torah. They're becoming primarily identified by the fact that they followed the one who completed the Torah, that they were following Yahweh's son, his representative here on earth, and that that was how they had salvation. And so they were losing all protection that they could get from their old homies, all right? Also, they can't go to synagogue. They can't go and do the... So imagine this. For years and years and years and years, you grow up going and experience synagogue as a church, and you do that with your people. And then the Messiah comes on the scene, and the people who used to roll your synagogue, they're going, you can't be here anymore because you believe Jesus is the Christ. So this place where you heard scripture, this place where you had friends, this place where all these amazing things happened, we don't believe that Jesus is the fulfillment and the one who all this pointed to, so you're not allowed here anymore. They're feeling lonely, they're feeling left out, they're feeling like, man, it was easier the way it used to be before Jesus came into my life. And that, guys, that is a tension we can relate to. Not necessarily all the outside stuff, but the inside aspect of have I downgraded Jesus from something less than what he actually is? That's why the point, my whole point of today, if if the author of Hebrews point was that Jesus disappeared to angels, which is kind of his way of saying, don't downgrade Jesus, Hebrew people. Don't downgrade him from Lord and Savior. Don't downgrade him to super cool angel. The same point that he is making is the same point I'm making to you. Don't downgrade Jesus. Now, maybe you're here going, okay, well, what do you mean don't downgrade Jesus? What do you mean? Like, what am I? I'm not saying he's an angel. Nobody in here is probably making that argument. Here's what we downgrade in our American Christian culture, Jesus, too. Savior. Now, you're going, reaching for the the rocks in your pocket to start throwing them up here and going, Trent, are you saying Jesus isn't our Savior? Like, you're going to get fired. Like, FYI. You're getting ready to send an email and call me blasphemous. Hold on, Jesus is totally Savior. But my question is, is that all he is? Is he only Savior? And if he, all he is to you is just Savior, I think we have about half of a gospel. Because over and over again, when you read Scripture, I cannot get past what it tells me about what faith really is. And that it's not just this acknowledging in my head, in my brain, that Jesus is the way to life, that he is just my Savior. Over and over again, we come to passages that show us that saving faith is faith that acknowledges Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so what we are susceptible to is downgrading Jesus from Lord of our life, ruler of our finances, ruler of what we see online, ruler of our time, ruler of what we do when nobody's watching. We downgrade him for Lord over all of those things and we just make him our Savior. Just get me out of hell. And we downgrade him. And this is what is killing and crippling the American church. Because we just want a savior, but we don't want a Lord. And now, I, 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 I don't ever want to be the person who tries to scare you into anything that you do in your faith. I want God's love to motivate you to action. But if you're here and you identify with this and you would say, I have a Jesus who I've only identified as Savior, but I have not surrendered to him as the Lord of my life, friend, that is a salvation that I would be scared to bank my eternity on. One that just has him as a downgraded Jesus, Savior only. He must be both. There's a passage I want to do everything I could to try to explain this to you using some cool illustration or uh, something about gamma ray radiation like I did a couple of weeks ago, but, or a Metallica song. I couldn't find any of those things. Lo and behold, the only thing I could find was another passage of Scripture, so you're going to have to deal with that, okay? So um, here's what I want you to do. 
I want you to get your Bible or your phone. I, I, if you have not ever brought a Bible here at MCC, please start doing that. But I want everybody to be able to see this with your own eyes. As you're turning to 1 John, okay, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, not that John. Keep going almost all the way to the very end of the Bible, and you're going to hit Revelation. And then just go a few books backwards. If you go from Revelation, you'll hit um, 3 John, and then you'll hit, maybe a Jude. There's a Jude in there somewhere, yeah, right? You hit Revelation, there's a Jude, then there's uh, John 3. Or no, I'm, you're wrong. There's three John, there's two John, there's one John. All right, so go to one John. One John, start with chapter 2. Go down to verse 28. I'll give you some time to get there or to pull it up on your phone or your browser or whatever. I want everybody to be able to see this. It's the best illustration I could possibly ever give you. It's not really an illustration. It's just truth, honestly. Like, this is the best way I can explain to you this whole concept of Lord and Savior. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. We're going to go all the way through 3 to verse 10. All right? Now, before I read this, I want you to understand, there is no cool little clip you're going to see on social media. There is no great alliteration or pontification from a pastor that you will hear this week that will outweigh the beauty magnitude and depth that is bound up in this passage of scripture. I can go out on a very sturdy limb here and say, this is the best thing you will hear all week long. And so I'm serving you up and I'm not gonna, I don't have time to unpack everything that's in here. But what I can tell you is I am serving up to you a beautiful filet mignon steak of meat in this passage. For you vegans out there, an eloquent salad with <laughs> croutons and stuff. I don't know what you like, a, you know, a Beyond Burger or something. I don't know. I'm serving you up something, and I'm not trying to feed it to you all the way. I want you to be able to take this passage home. Like, your to-do this week is to, t- like, take this passage and go chew on it, digest it, savor it this week. Because this is, this is so important for us to get if we're not just going to be people who call ourselves Christians, but we're actually going to be people who are disciples of Christ. Let's read it together. Chapter 2, verse 28, 1 John. And now, little children, I love John. He's old at this point, so he's talking to him like a grandfather would. And now, little children, abide in him. The him there is Jesus. So that when he appears, Jesus is going to come again we may have confidence and not shrink back in him in shame at his coming. Listen to this, 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. All right? Read that one more time. Everyone who practices, we're talking about practice? Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So what he's saying there, for all you out there who would go, how do I know I'm born again? As cut and dry as possible. How do you know you're born again? You practice righteousness. Now, in regards to faith, faith is somewhat passive. You hear the truth of the gospel. Your mind is awoken to that. You believe, and in the moment you put your trust and your faith and your hope in that, you believe and your belief is somewhat passive. But what he's saying here is truly to be born again. We have to move past what's passive and into what is proactive. And practicing righteousness is a proactive endeavor that starts because I believe, see, and realize who Jesus is. I see that, and so I go, oh my goodness, I have to do something different. He calls me out of my old life into a new life. I have to be a practicer of righteousness, and that is proof that I'm actually born Again, keep going. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children. Now, and we will be, and what we will be has not yet appeared. He's saying, we are God's kids now. But what you will be has not yet appeared. 
What he is saying there is, you are God's kid, but what you will be has not yet appeared. And what he's saying is going to appear is Jesus in his fullness. And when Jesus in his fullness appears, you are going to have Jesus' fullness appear in you. That's mind-boggling. All right, again, go take that steak and chew on it. Keep going. Let's start back in verse 2 of chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children. We are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Again, this goes back to that passage that we read last week and dove into. What did it say Jesus did? It said Jesus made purification for sin, and then where did he go sit? At the right hand of God. So track with me. He is the purifier, and salvation happens through him. But then where does he go? To a place to rule and reign. He, Hebrews 1.3 is pointing us full fact to the place that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. He's Savior because he purifies, and he's Lord because he's sitting at the right hand of God. Now, I sat down for a reason because the news that I'm going to have to break to you in chapter uh, in verse four is you need to be sitting down down the news, okay? Verse four. I just let's just let God's word speak for itself. Verse four. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. What he means by that right there is lawlessness is saying, I don't have the Lord of Lords as my Lord. What do kings create in their kingdom? The laws, okay? So when he says, if I'm practicing sin, I'm in lawlessness, it's saying, I don't, I don't obey or adhere to this king's reign, rule, and regulation. I make my own laws. It's not saying you don't have laws, you just don't have his laws. Verse five. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. That's my sin, your sins. That's not just sin in general, but that's our specific sin. And in him, there is no sin. Verse six, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. It's as if John knows he just rolled a grenade into the room. Verse 7, he says, little children, to remind us that God still loves us and God still cares for us. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever, there's that word again, practices righteousness is righteous. How do I know I'm righteous? I practice righteousness as he is righteous, that he there is Jesus. Now, again, he's helping us. He's helping those of you who freaked out when he said, if you keep sinning, you don't know God. You're going, oh, well, that, well you're, you're, you're putting two and two together and going, I sinned this morning. Oh, snap. <laughs> he's, he's clarifying here that there is a difference between sin that just continues to come out of you. you. You're actively trying to not live by the flesh and live by the spirit. But we all know that we still, while we're down here, we're gonna still stumble, we're gonna still mess up. But he's saying there's a difference between the person who is practicing righteousness and occasionally sin than the person who is practicing sin, period. That's why he says, whoever practices righteousness is righteousness as he is righteous. In verse eight, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So what does that mean? Who makes a practice of sinning? It's a person who goes, this is just who I am. It's a person that says, I get to choose what, what parts of God's words I want to obey and what parts of God's word I want to say are outdated and don't match up with what my culture says about my identity or my sexuality. This is, this is us when we just say, okay, I know what God's word says about what I need to do with my money and how I don't need to be greedy, but I'm gonna continue to do this because I wanna make sure I'm safe and secure. This is us when we say, I know everybody is created in God's image, but I like the people whose kind of image looks like me. This is continually practicing sin. That's why he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, not just in general, but specifically in 
your life and my life. Verse nine, he keeps laying it out there. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And I, and I hate to be this guy today, but I have, I, God is not gonna hold me accountable for my personality. God's not gonna hold me accountable for what cool stories I tell you guys. God's gonna hold me accountable for whether or not I preach to you his word. And so I, I have, like, I'm obligated to him. Send me the email, get mad, feel like that was too hellfire brimstone if you want to, but I will not let your eternity be on my shoulders. I'm gonna preach to you the word of God, okay? So this is what he says. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, verse nine. For God's seed abides in him, and he, I love this, he cannot keep sinning. Can you just, in the quietness of your own soul right now, if you know that you're God's child, that you've been born again, will you just whisper that to yourself? I cannot keep sinning. I cannot keep sinning. I I cannot. See, some of us have bought that lie. It's just like, I'm just gonna keep doing this, and then slowly but surely, you know, something will change. Put a stake in the ground, sir. Put a stake in the ground, man. I, I cannot keep doing this. Because he has been born of God. Verse 10. By this, it is evident. All right? He's saying, okay, I want to see proof positive. I want to see evidence. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. You can put the same two words in. When he says, whoever does not practice righteousness, whoever does not let Jesus be the Lord of their life, whoever is just cool with having him as a savior, but refuses to bow the knee to his rule, to his reign. His grace is free, friend, but his grace is not cheap. It will cost you your life the way you want it to be so that it can be the way he commands it to be. And listen, he is the only one who could do that. And this is what's awesome. Like, honestly, those of you who may struggle with anxiety or fear of man, and you're always worried about what everybody else is thinking about you, this passage should not be a weight or a burden on your shoulder. This should be so incredibly freeing to know that the only thing that really matters is am I in Christ or not? The only thing that really matters is am I really born again? And to go like, I don't have to worry about practicing things that please other people or please myself or please me as the Lord. All I have to worry about is, is, is what I'm doing Practicing righteousness. Am I surrendering to Jesus as the Lord of my life? And if that's the case, bingo. You're, you're, you're good. You're secure. You don't have to worry about things. God has got you. That's why, again, that's why I think John in his old age is going, oh, little children, you have a father who loves you. Now, I have to tell you that right there, that part about he loves you, because some of you in this room, you're rule followers, and you're very susceptible to being, you remember the prodigal son story? Little brother was just like, I'm wilding out, give my money, I'm going to the far country. Bump you, dad. And then older brother was like, dad, I love you so much. I'm gonna stay here and work really hard for you. Watch me let you lord over my life. Watch me practice your lordship. You rule, dad, I follow your rules. I follow all your rules, dad. And on the outside, it looked like he really loved dad, but you know what? He really didn't. He really didn't have the father's house. He really didn't have the father's heart. He really just wanted a relationship with the father so that he could get stuff from the father. This is made evident by him saying, when when the father confronts him in his pride, he says, all these years I've been slaving for you and you never even gave me a goat. He's telling him. And this is is where you gotta understand this. Some of you in this room, you're gonna walk out here and gonna go, okay, I gotta go start letting him be Lord. I gotta go follow all the rules. I gotta do all this stuff. If you do that before you look at the cross and fall madly in love with the savior who gave his life for you, you will continue to be an older brother and you'll be just as wicked as you would if you had been the younger brother who never accepted him in the first place. We don't just have to repent of the things we've done wrong. We have to repent of the things that we did right for the wrong reasons. The reason I'm motivated to follow Christ, the reason I'm motivated to to let him be Lord of my life is because I'm madly in love with him because I see the price he paid. I just surrender. I'm like, okay, you you got it. What what else am I gonna do but follow you? And this this is why, two last passages of scripture I want you to be able to see here. You gotta ask yourself the question, are you saved? And the next thing you gotta ask is, are you following? And the first question here, are you following is what answers, are you saved? Dude, we, we just got, oh, am I saved? And a lot of us, that means, did I raise my hand at a conference? Did I put, uh, did I check a box somewhere? Did I pray a prayer with Mima when I was four? 
And that's all great, that's awesome. Those are oftentimes the seed to which real actual faith gets planted and then begins to actually grow. But the true question for us as followers of Christ is are you following? Somewhere down the line, we started to identify ourselves by a different name. See, in the very beginning, the people who followed Christ were called just that, they're followers of the way. And after that, they were called his disciples. But somewhere down the line, we just got to this place where like, we're just uh, Christians. Or even worse, and I hate this every time I hear it described of our people, they're just evangelicals. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said these very, very sharp, pointed, but obvious and crystal clear words. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, it's his way of saying, if anybody wants to be saved, if anybody wants to know that they're born again, if anybody wants to have me as their Lord and Savior, if anybody wants to come after me, if you're coming after him, you're going where he's going, to the Father. If anybody wants to get to the Father, essentially what he's saying here, if you want to get to the Father, let him deny himself. That's not passive. That's a practice. Deny himself and take up his cross daily, implying practice. This is what I do daily. Like a good athlete, there's not a day that he goes by without picking up his ball and his bat. A good athlete, a good soldier, a good warrior in Christ, someone who's truly a disciple, does not go a day without picking up their cross. It is a daily practice of dying to myself so I can follow Christ. He says, this is, what it's, this is not just, hey, you know, easy, believe, sign off, go from there. Hope you're good with all these things. It's deeper. There's more involved. Because this is what it means to be a disciple. I want us to be a church who maybe grasps this big, heavy truth and gets back to what we were originally called to be. We are called to be a disciple. I've had some really fun, heartbreaking arguments with people that there is a difference between someone who's a Christian and someone who's a disciple. And you can be a Christian and not a disciple. And that, that, I have a hard time with that. But these are arguments coming from baby Christians. These are arguments coming from megachurch pastors who I've worked on staff for. I'm going, I don't know, guys. With all humility, I, that's not what I see in Scripture. And so I want us to be this people who embrace what does it mean to not just be a raise my hand cultural Christian, but what does it really mean to be a disciple? And I want to give you uh, the best way I can explain it to you is, is, is a disciple is someone who lives 3D. So what I would explain this as. A disciple is someone who's first and foremost that I'm just surrendered out, devoted to Christ. He has my devotion. I'm not devoted to my family. I'm not devoted to making my ends meet. I'm not devoted to my business. I'm not devoted even first and foremost to my marriage or my kids. I am first and foremost devoted to Christ. And everything that I do in my life flows out of that devotion to him as purifying king. Secondly, I'm dying. And what I mean there is not just the fact that like we're all kind of dying in the room, like that, you know, everybody checks that box physically. But what I'm saying there, and we've talked about this a lot, I'm dying to my flesh. How do I know that I am being a disciple? Less and less of me is here and more and more of Jesus is there. A perfect example of this is the apostle Peter there the night that Jesus is betrayed and he's warming his hands around a fire and a, and a middle school girl comes up and says, hey, you look like one of those guys who used to be one of Jesus' followers. And he starts cursing at her, denying the fact that he knows Jesus. Well, that part of his flesh begins to die away and that same Peter skips, hops, and jumps out of prison when they whip him and beat him because he's so excited that someone would persecute him in the name of his savior. The same guy who was terrified to even admit he knew him. He's dying to his fear and he's living out of his faith. That's an indication that you are a disciple. Stop sinning. And then this is the one that we don't like to talk about because it's so much easier to just, I'm devoted. I spend 18 hours in my quiet time every single day and I'm dying to my flesh. I can't remember the last time I even, you know, sniffed something that was evil. Like I'm doing all the good things. But then Jesus goes, okay, I need, to, I need you to get out of your own personal bubble and I need you to go make disciples. It's, it's not enough for you to say, hey, I'm devoted and this is me and you. And then, hey, I'm dying to my flesh, me and you. Jesus goes, the crazy thing about our faith is it doesn't just not unite me to God. It unites us to each other. And God wants to use you to do an incredibly special job, a job that he refused to even give to angels. He says, I want to give this to you. 
I want you to be the primary means through which people will hear my gospel. I want you, parents, employees, teachers, accountants, sales managers, hairstylists, students, I want you to go wherever it is that you're at by the power of my Holy Spirit abiding in you and go make disciples so that this kingdom of earth is as it is in heaven. And so if you're here, you're going, okay, well, where do I go with this? First, I want to talk to the person who's not in Christ. And you're the person who would say, yeah, I may have had Jesus as my Lord up in my head, but I don't know if he really is or maybe my savior in my head, but I don't really know if he's my Lord. I don't know if I've really surrendered my life to him. There's this awesome story in the book of Acts where Jesus has just been crucified and resurrected and the Holy Spirit busts out. And this guy, Peter, again, we just talked about a second ago, he starts preaching this gospel and he tells all this giant crowd, 3,000 plus people there, he starts preaching the gospel to them, walking them through all the Old Testament passages all the way back up to Jesus. And he says, this Jesus is the man you crucified. And upon hearing that, this is what happens. It's wild. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart because that's what the gospel does. Gospel preaching cuts to the heart. It doesn't cut to the pocketbook. It doesn't cut to the emotions. It doesn't cut to the behavior. Gospel preaching cuts to the heart. When they're cut to the heart, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what nine-week class do we go learn about this theology in? They said, what do we do? And again, that's what the gospel does. It is, it is evident Nothing right there goes, and they believed. Do you know what translates, and they believed? This question. You don't ask this question unless you really do believe. What do we do? What do we do? Whoa, like, this is so true. Look, we're, this is obvious. You preach with power, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and God did amazing work in our heart, and the proof positive that it was really of God and not man's manipulation was they go, what do we do about this? And then Peter very cut and dry, plain and simple, not overly complicated. Repent and be baptized. I want Jesus to be not just the savior of my life, but the Lord of my life. What do I do? You repent, friend, and you be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some of you are here, you're wondering, why is it so hard for me to let Jesus be the Lord of my life? It's because you haven't been baptized, and you have not received the Holy Spirit fully yet. It's really hard to let Jesus be the Lord of your life without his spirit, Holy Spirit, living in you. The Bible tells us very clearly, repent and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you want the gift of the Holy Spirit, it will enable you to let Jesus not just be the Savior of your life, but the Lord of your life. You'll be finally, for one point in your life, secure in your salvation in him. Today, I want to invite you to surrender fully to him as your Lord and Savior and be baptized I'm already getting ready to baptize uh, another woman of God today, and I'd love to be able to do that with you as well. You can go right out there uh, to the back at that uh, connect table right there, straight through those doors. If you want to get baptized, go straight out through there, and we will get you up to that giant uh, tub in the sky, and we will baptize you. And I believe upon that baptism, you will be surrendering and submitting and saying, Jesus, you're the Lord of my life. My old is gone. My new has come. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you'll walk out of here a new creation. Or you can keep on with what you're doing. Choice is yours. But eternity is far too long a time to take a risk today. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is the power. I thank you that it, it, and it alone is what leads us to salvation. And I pray that it would do that today. In your name, amen.